Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Henry J. Prisbillo will join us to discuss anesthetic procedure. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, many of us may not stop to consider what happens when we undergo an anesthetic procedure, but it may be surprising to know that the field of anesthesiology is still grappling with some of these issues itself. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Henry J. Prisbillo. Uh, Dr. Prisbillo is an anesthesiologist with more than 30 years' experience. He has written an unforgettable account of the routine procedures and daily dramas inherent in the uh, fundamental mysteries of anesthesiology. In his new book, Counting Backwards, A Doctor's Notes on Anesthesiology, he explores many of the most common but mysterious procedures in medicine. Dr. Prisbillo is faculty at Northwestern University. Dr. Prisbillo, we're very pleased to have you today on the program. Gratified for you to ask me to be on it. Uh, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, again, Counting Backwards, A Doctor's Notes on Anesthesia. I'm curious, uh, maybe first before we begin, how did, how did you become interested in this field of medicine? It, it's a little bit of a humorous story. Uh, when I went into medical school, I was purely directed towards surgery. Uh, I thought I was going to be uh, one of the next great surgeons in life. And during medical school, there's a number of electives that you can take. And I thought going into surgery, that an anesthesia elective would fit very, very well so that I would know what happens on either side of the blood-brain barrier, which is otherwise known as the ether screen, the uh, drapes that divides uh, anesthesia from the surgical part. And so I started investigating the anesthesia elective, and lo and behold, it actually offered a stipend, so I could earn $600 if I took the elective. And now you must understand that at this particular time, I was married and I already had an infant child. And so I took the, uh, grabbed the elective and the money, and I enjoyed the elective, but I plowed the money into speakers for my stereo and Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. So, uh, so it wasn't the wisest thing I ever did uh, in terms of making money, but it was a pretty wise decision on uh, doing the anesthesia rotation. And certainly you kept along with it. What was it about anesthesia then that drew you in, uh, that uh, sort of took you away from the surgical aspects? Anesthesiology allows for several things. It allows, uh, first of all, what it doesn't allow is for you to forget much about what you learn in medical school. It is one immensely broad field that covers virtually every aspect of medicine. So on any given day, you need to open up the pathology book, the physiology book, the pharmacology book, uh, the anatomy book to look for some reference that you need uh, to perform well. Uh, so, so that was one of the things. But it also allowed you to do procedures at the same time. Uh, so nerve blocks and various uh, venous axis, arterial axis, airway management. So, so it, it seemed to marry the two very, very nicely for me. So, so you mentioned a lot of different types of uh, anesthesia, and I think a lot, oftentimes when people think about it, it's oftentimes of, of that procedure which just basically knocks you out, but there, there are various grades of this sort of thing. And how did these compounds begin to be developed, and how do they become, are they specific, and to what extent do we understand uh, many of the agents that we use? 
anesthesia is kind of uh, has a fascinating history. For for centuries, people were looking for ways to uh, eliminate pain for various procedures. Uh, in the 1840s, the uh, two things that were going on in large scale causing pain uh, were broken bones from accidents and whatnot, and then also abscesses in the mouth, uh, oral abscesses, tooth, tooth infections. And it was the dentist that really took a uh, major uh, stride in trying to alleviate pain for having dental extractions, uh, and uh, they eventually fell onto ether, uh, which, which worked very, very well. Before then, ether was used as a party drug, and the actual first documented anesthetic uh, was as a result of a person who used to use it for parties and noticed it could be done for something else, uh, and that was Crawford Long down in Georgia. The only thing Crawford Long didn't do was uh, was publish what he did, where in Boston, Morton was very, very quick to have a public demonstration of the use of ether, and within days, it was published and, and spread around the world. So the, the fact that you could breathe in something. You didn't have to put it into the body. There were no shots, no pills, no drinking. Just breathe it, and you drifted off, and you had painless surgery. It, uh, it was recognized uh, quickly and spread around the world very, very quickly, uh, and it was a significant part of the Civil War, unfortunately, with all the wounds and broken bones and infections for amputations. Uh, with time and with antisepsis and with uh, uh, surgical giants like Halstead uh, in, uh, out east, uh, expansion of surgery was dramatic, and so that you had to cover different things. And uh, part of the book uh, moves, migrates from using a gas to what uh, I deconstruct the anesthesia, the term anesthesia, which means without feeling, and I deconstruct it into various components. And those components then today allow uh, anesthesia to focus on certain areas. So you don't always have to breathe the gas to be anesthetized. Uh, you don't need the all-in-one gas. You can do it in pieces which are more specific to what you need. Uh, for instance, and stop me if I'm running on, uh, but knee replacements, knee surgeries. Uh, you can do a nerve block, give local anesthetic to various nerves that will deaden the uh, sensation to that particular area. Uh, and without having to use anything else, you can do a little bit of sedation and you can have a perfectly good surgical procedure with a good outcome. How many of these agents, I mean, you sort of mentioned the serendipitous uh, use and discovery of, of ether. How many of these uh, have been developed or devised um, by experimentation to, to target these things or, or just uh, as ether was sort of to have these anesthetic effects? Well, the, the sad thing about anesthesia is the last round of gas anesthetics that was introduced was introduced uh, around 1971 or so, patented for uh, business purposes. And the last inhalation anesthetic from that group was introduced in the 90s, early 90s. There, there isn't anything on the horizon in terms of new anesthetic gases. Uh, so what we have is what we've got, and we have to use them. Uh, in terms of, of some of the other medications, uh, we've had improvements in the medications that are used to induce anesthesia. Uh, we now use uh, what I affectionately call milk of amnesia, which is propofol very, very quick acting and wake up very, very clear. And we're honing in on uh, better pain relievers, uh, both uh, narcotic, which is obviously causing quite the stir in the country with all the uh, abuse potential, and uh, non-narcotic medications. Uh, so so we're, we're getting better on that. We're making some improvements on the local anesthetics so that uh, we can target the specific area with local anesthetics and get uh, long-lasting pain relief. And that's both in, in the anesthetic agents itself and in the techniques we're using.
So, so in terms of intravenous uh, and other types of medications, we're doing well. In terms of the gas, we're pretty much at the end. So you sort of mentioned the different effects of it, some, some block the pain, some to dull the sensation or the awareness of it. Are there agents which are trying to be more broad-spectrum or a combination of all these things? Well, you know, the gas anesthetic is all in one. Uh, you, you have the uh, anxiety relief, you have the pain relief, uh, you have memory, amnesia, uh, and, and uh, you get all of them in one. Uh, but again, let's go back to that knee uh, reconstruction or, or replacement for a second uh, with a... Uh, uh, injection that women uh, have uh, for pregnancy, for birth very commonly, the epidural, you can also use that uh, to, to block the uh, sensation to the knee. You can also go a little bit further out and block specific nerves. And then it's a question of, of the patient and the patient anxiety and how much the patient expects. Because we can give medications where the patient will sleep and will have absolutely no recall. Or we can have medications where you can answer questions during the procedure and the patient is perfectly comfortable. So amnesia, you know, it depends if it's a necessity, do you want it or not? Uh, so so you, we're honing in more specifically to what's actually needed for each particular case. So uh, as an anesthesiologist, of course, you have to deal with a number of these different situations. Which are the most challenging and among all the cases that you've been involved in, which has been the most memorable? Well, the most memorable actually isn't a human. It's a, it's a great ape, uh, Tabibu, uh, magnificent animal that I uh, was most fortunate in being able to provide care for. Uh, and, and just that I was caring for a great ape was absolutely amazing. As it turns out, uh, the great ape is very similar to the humans. So, so pretty close to what you give to humans, you can give to a great ape and get the same effect. Uh, and that's, in essence, why she actually came uh, to us uh, for surgery and for anesthesia. Uh, the, the, the most difficult cases are the ones where everything is in play. Uh, so uh, let's, let's take uh, and compare quickly a uh, brain aneurysm uh, and uh, compare that to a uh, major liver case, per se. The, the brain aneurysm uh, is absolutely critical that the blood pressure and heart rate stay absolutely stable, no changing whatsoever as the surgeon is moving in to place that clip on that uh, vessel, which is smaller than you expect, and yet it can wreak all kinds of havoc. Uh, so, so absolutely purely stable vital signs are critical to that. On the other hand, when you're doing a uh, hepatic case, a liver transplant or a liver tumor resection or something of like that, it, then, then everything goes awry in that you can have large amounts of blood loss, uh, swings in blood pressure, swings in heart rate, uh, swings in how well you're oxygenating the patient, and trying to keep that patient stable is a battle in and of itself. So, so uh, I, uh, the liver cases have always been the most challenging to me in terms of overall stability. For cases like that, does it require uh, more than one anesthesiologist on board, or you better be on your toes that day? You, you better be on your toes that day. Uh, it, what it requires is preparing appropriately for the case. So, so I had a, a colleague uh, who was one of the most knowledgeable that I ever uh, met uh, who taught me, whenever you go into any anesthetic case, uh, you have a plan, a backup, and a backup to the backup. So specifically with those liver cases and, and large blood loss cases, uh, you, you know what your next step is before you actually need it. Because if you don't, you're a step behind and you're in trouble. So preparedness is much more important than the number of hands you have. So you mentioned your uh, interesting case with the great ape. Was it different anesthetizing an animal, or did they have a sort of a different physiology? And what did you learn about uh, anesthesia in general from working with animals? 
Tabiba was a uh, a lowland gorilla uh, who came to us from the zoo with a uh, abdominal problem turned out to be an abscess with a hole in the intestines. And uh, one of my partners actually anesthetized the animal for the actual procedure. The issue that arose quickly afterwards is the zoo vet declaring the animal was an absolute wild animal uh, required that the animal go back to the zoo immediately on emerging from anesthesia. Whenever you do a procedure on the uh, abdomen, on the intestines, they tend to stop working for a while. And so they, to people who returned to the zoo unable to eat or drink, and then uh, several days later, uh, I was asked to uh, help out our surgical colleagues, and they took me into this room, and there was Tabibu, who was, uh, frankly, pretty close to death. Uh, she was in real trouble. And so, so the challenge there was uh, was actually making sure that we could give fluids as we needed to. The IV was probably the most difficult thing. Outside of that, the, the anesthetic agents uh, were fairly similar, uh, as a matter of fact, exactly similar. And uh, in her airway, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a bit of a challenge, but I was able to manage it so that I could put a breathing tube in her. Uh, and the beautiful thing about it is after several days, uh, she woke up, and it was uh, a beautiful thing. And off to the zoo she went, this time able to eat and drink, and this time staying healthy. Uh, the follow-up on Tabibu I think is equally fascinating because I thought Tabibu was sterile from either the infection she suffered or the uh, surgical procedure she had. And uh, a year or two after the procedure, uh, Tabibu was transferred to the zoo in Columbus, Ohio. And just recently, I was uh, doing a little bit of internet searching, and uh, and I looked up Tabibu, and it turns out that uh, a year ago, uh, Tabibu gave birth. Uh, in the stranger than fiction category, Tabibu gave birth actually on my birthday, and she gave birth to a little boy that they named JJ. So, so I have a namesake out in uh, Columbus, Ohio, that I'm very proud of. So uh, now you got that going for you. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. Not many people can claim that. <laughs> um, dealing with a number of patients, what, what do you think is their most common fear regarding anesthesia? And how can you sort of allay some of those fears or the questions that most people have regarding anesthesia and, and its process? I, I think I'm very, very accurate when I say, you know, I have a practice that's sequestered behind automatic double doors and blazoned with do not enter signs. So so very few people actually get to see what happens in that place. And, and if I do my job right, my patient will never remember it, which is which is a goal, but they don't understand it. So they're entering the world of the unknown. Uh, and uh, not only that, they're entering the world of an unknown. And one of my taglines that I, that I try to have people understand what it's like, is that if you give me three minutes of your time, then you'll give me your life. Because about three minutes is what I spend with a patient before we head off to anesthesia. So, So that's a very challenging three minutes to try and make a connection to learn everything you can about that patient and yet to instill confidence uh, that they will do just fine. Uh, and then families, and especially in my world where I deal with a lot of children, uh, convincing parents is a, is a whole nother uh, specialty in of itself, trying to tell them that life will be okay. Statistics are, are quite clear. And if a healthy patient goes in, a healthy patient is coming out. It's rare for a not healthy patient to have a real, real rare event. On the other hand, uh, my patients are frequently not healthy, so, so there is risk to it. But, you, but I always tell patients and parents and families and whoever's with them, I have a very singular goal, 
And that's that at the end of the case, when they're awake and they're returning to their families, I'm returning them in better condition than they came to me. And I think that confidence and that compassion, if you will, I, it, it sounds a little bit uh, like I'm patting myself on the back too much, but, but, you know, letting them know that you care and you know what you're doing, I think alleviates a lot of anxiety on their parts. It sounds like you need training as a therapist too, to do this job. <laughs> Boy, do you, especially with children. Yeah. Maybe to close, uh, what, what do you think uh, is left for the field of anesthesiology? What, what the horizons or the mysteries, uh, what would you like to see solved? Well, I, you know, I, uh, one thing that I truly believe in, I think pain relief is a right uh, in the universe. Everybody should be able to achieve pain relief. Uh, in today's uh, environment, uh, pain relief is being equated with a lot of addiction. Uh, and we need to figure out a way to provide pain relief without having the drugs that, that cause those issues. And I think we're moving in on them. I think there's some very, very exciting research going on. I think people have to accept regional pain blocks so that you not always have to be sedated with pain relief, uh, but that you can be wide awake and still have an area of the body that you, that you eliminate the pain from. So we need to grow in terms of eliminating regional pain, and we have to improve the, uh, the opioid medications to make them non-addictive. And so, so there's some giant uh, issues on the horizon. Some of them, I think, can be tackled. I hope certainly people take a look at uh, your book, a fascinating account here. Uh, it's called Counting Backwards, A Doctor's Note on Anesthesia. And uh, we were just talking with its author, Dr. Henry J. Prisvillo. And uh, Dr. Prisvillo, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Well, I want to thank you, too, and I think if the people read the book, a lot of questions are going to go away because they'll understand the anesthesia a lot better. But uh, I, I am truly gratified that uh, you picked up on, uh, on the book and on the topic, and I'm gratified to be on your show. Uh, it's really a pleasure, and, and again, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking.